0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Speaking in Havana this morning, President Obama acknowledged the attacks in Brussels and then focused on his visit to Cuba. He is the first sitting U.S. president since Calvin Coolidge to visit the island. Obama sprinkled his speech today with Spanish.
1: Creo en el pueblo cubano. I believe in the Cuban people. This is not just a policy of normalizing relations with the Cuban government. The United States of America is normalizing relations with the Cuban people. And today, I want to share with you my vision of what our future can be. I want the Cuban people, especially the young people, to understand why I believe that you should look to the future with hope, not the false promise which insists that things are better than they really are, Or the blind optimism that says all your problems can go away tomorrow. Hope that is rooted in the future that you can choose and that you can shape and that you can build for your country.
0: The president traveled to Cuba with members of Congress, including Democrat Ed Perlmutter of Golden. He is the only member of the Colorado delegation there, and he is on the line with us. Congressman, just briefly, I wonder if we might start with the attacks in Brussels and whether you've been able to learn anything about them before we talk about Cuba.
2: Well, I have. Um, so it was a little bit uh, garbled, line coming in there asking about Belgium.
0: Indeed, and if you've been able to learn uh, anything about the attacks, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So
2: what we, uh, yeah, we've heard from our State Department pretty much what you all have heard: uh, two attacks at the airport and the one attack at the metro. Um, near the uh, seat of government, and uh, loss of about 30 lives so far. And so, you know, on a day that there's a very positive step for America with Cuba, there's a negative step for terrorism in the world.
0: I'll say we've learned in just the last few minutes this morning that ISIS has claimed responsibility for the attacks uh, and indeed, a historic day in, in uh, a very mixed sense. So let's talk about uh, Cuba now. Um, j- just briefly, what, it, what has struck you most about your, your trip there so far?
2: Well, it's one, the very welcoming nature of the Cubans and uh, their appreciation for the president coming to visit the island Two, the fact that much of the island in the city of Havana, you feel you're in the 1950s or 60s or maybe the 70s. So it's like going back in time.
0: What is it that gives you that impression?
2: <laughs> well, buildings, for one thing, there is not much of any new construction. There is some restoration going on. But a lot of 60s and 70s style concrete buildings, and then on the roads, it's every car that you've seen from the 1950s or maybe the early 60s, so 55, 57 Chevys, old Chrysler, Imperials, old Fords, and restored very nicely, but you feel like you're at a a car show.
0: At a car show. You sit on the Financial Services Committee, Space Science and Technology, as well. Uh, why were you chosen for this trip to Cuba? What is your interest there? Uh, I guess specifically representing Colorado's Seventh District.
2: Well, I've been supportive of lifting the embargo because I think many people in America—or not many, but some people in America—and some people in Cuba are still living in the 1950s and 60s and still reliving those conflicts. But the world has moved on, and it's time to lift the embargo, and it's time to broaden the relationship we have with Cuba. We have many Cuban-Americans, and it's only 90 miles from the Florida shore, so it's time to move on. I think I was chosen because of that, and maybe because of science. Um, they're, this is a well-educated uh, people here, and they have uh, made strides in health care, particularly dealing with things like Ebola and Zika. Uh, they have a good biosciences uh, industry that's developed. And I think for Colorado, we could see a, a real natural collaboration between our biosciences, potentially our renewable energy, and Cuba.
0: Have you any, had any direct conversations uh, in, in that regard since you've been on the island?
2: I had a direct conversation with the foreign ministry this morning about renewable energy and the fact that we have the National Renewable Energy Lab in the congressional district and their desire to start adding more solar and potentially wind, but certainly solar.
0: Indeed, the federal lab, the National Renewable Energy uh, Laboratory in your 7th district. Uh, Has anything President Obama or Cuban President Raul Castro said during this visit surprised you?
2: Well, uh, we met with President Obama on evening when we all got to Cuba. And he was just very excited and very optimistic. Uh, And I think felt some real personal satisfaction in opening this relationship uh, with Cuba. And he's been doing it pretty single-handedly because Congress has not lifted the embargo, but the president has helped lift some travel bans, uh, some bans on uh, different financial questions. So there's been effort on the part of the administration to start normalizing these relationships and getting on uh, with, you know, time. Instead of having time stand still, it's time to move on.
3: Thank you
0: for being with us. Congressman...
2: You're very welcome. I think you said thank being with us, and I'm sorry. It's kind of tough
0: to hear you a little bit today. That's okay. That's a line to Havana, Cuba, and Democrat Ed Perlmutter of Golden. He represents Colorado's 7th District. And we're going to talk now about the relationship between this visit and Colorado's small but tight-knit Cuban community with us now to discuss the obstacles and the opportunities ahead. Maria Garcia Berry, she runs a public affairs firm in Denver and was born in Cuba. So was former Denver Mayor Bill Vidal. He now lives in Florida. And Elaine Gantz-Berman served on the Denver School Board. Her mother was born in Cuba. I want to welcome all three of you to the program. Uh, you've all been back to Cuba in recent years and have plans for future projects there. Maria, you've actually been several times since you left as a child in the early 1960s. What do you hope the president's visit leads to?
4: Well, I think the, what I'm hoping for is that the Denver, that the president's visit really, um, strikes a chord among the Cuban people and the fact that they can um, be able to learn a lot about us and about how the United States does things, and particularly in terms of uh, uh, a demo- democracy and, and civ- civic involvement and also economic prosperity. Um, I've been very involved uh, in the last couple of years with a uh, foundation called Emprende who has really tried to foster and build entrepreneurship among the Cuban people so that they can basically develop economic self-reliance.
0: And how foreign a concept or not is entrepreneurship to a Cuban?
4: I think it's inherent in our gene pool that I think we're always looking for uh, ways to do things better. But I think we need; it's not in; they have not been been around it for a fifty plus years. So I think it's important that they pair and partner with other entrepreneurs from across, from the U.S., particularly since we have such a strong entrepreneur spirit and other parts of the world in order to do that. But I think inherently in the Cuban people. They're very creative. They're very imaginative. I think it's there. I think just we need to develop that inherent uh, gene pool that they've got.
0: Elaine, anything specific that you think the president's visit can accomplish in the long term?
5: Well, first, I would say that the Cubans love Americans. Um I've been to Cuba several times. My most recent visit was in February, and uh, they look for every opportunity to speak to you, to learn what's going on in the United States, and to ask when the embargo is going to end. I would say that uh, when you ask people what changes have been made since the president first opened up things in December of a year ago, um, they basically say not very much, that their life has continued as it was before. The level of poverty is still pretty entrenched. And where you really see the differences is for the people that have taken advantage of being an entrepreneur and opened up small restaurants, uh, opened up their homes to visitors so people could stay there. But as a general rule, the Cuban people have not seen too much change.
0: So the, the shifts may appear to an outsider, at least politically, as seismic. But you're saying that on the ground in Cuba... Uh, Those are less evident, those changes.
5: I I think that's a very, very true statement. I mean, we took a taxi to the airport and spoke to the taxi cab driver and he said, you know, people in the United States think there have been huge changes, but there have not.
0: Mm. And Bill Vidal, how about you? Is there anything specific you think the president's visit can do to make a material change in U.S.-Cuban government and business relationships?
3: Well, hello, Ryan. It's nice to hear your voice, and nice to hear the voice of my Cuban sisters, Elaine and Maria. How are you guys? So, so beautiful to hear you. you. Um, before I say anything, I just want to uh, send my my heart's <laughs> desire and prayers and good wishes to the people of Brussels. I think that what they've endured today is uh, catastrophic for the. I think the atmosphere in the community, I know they will recover. I also want to say something about the Cal Marcella family. Cal was a real hero and visionary in our community and I was really sorry to hear of his passing this weekend. Let me say that he's, um, a, he's
0: a former head of the Colorado Department of Transportation and um, pardon me, of no, RTD. Cal was actually of RTD. Yeah. And you were a former head of the Colorado Department of Transportation and obviously worked closely with Mr. Marcellus. Right. Some and and
3: really Cal was the father of I think the, the uh, Fast Tracks um, projects that you see today and he brought a lot of energy and vision to our community. So this is the only public platform I have to say something about him, so I thought I'd take the opportunity. I also just want to answer your your question quickly. I think the biggest thing that I see uh as the advantage of of the president uh visiting Cuba is I think so little gets done politically. It's uh you know, everybody wordsmiths agreements and fights over how things will get done. What is really important that I see is that the veil of fear is removed from the Cuban people and the American people. And understand that we are brothers and sisters in this planet and that there's nothing to be afraid of. And the minute they start interacting with each other, you will see huge changes come. As Maria says, the entrepreneurial (coughs) spirit of the Cuban people will be enhanced. I think the desire that so many Americans have to help people who need help will also be uh, initiated once again. And I think that where you'll see the real change is not so much among the politicians who will always grandstand and always say the politically correct thing for their audiences. The real change will happen when we start intermingling with the Cuban people. And, and so
0: you don't expect there to be um, overnight and meteoric shifts on the political level, but that a lot of this will, I suppose, bubble up popularly. Um, I want to talk a bit about your impressions of, of present-day Cuba and how you'd like to be involved there specifically, but why don't we start a bit with your childhoods? So, Maria Garcia-Berry, you came to the U.S. through Operation Peter Pan. Correct. Briefly remind us what that was.
4: So, both um, Bill and I are products of Operation Peter Pan. It was a project that was undertaken by uh, churches, the Catholic Church in the U.S., and also um, parts of the government um, to basically relocate uh, Cuban children first, and so they were given priority to exit Cuba from about sixty to about sixty-three. <laughs> this was and often th-
0: without their parents.
4: I, I, well, you, it had to be without your parents, and though then your parents would then have first rights and be able to jump the line, so to say, in the visa queue to get out of the country. If you had children abroad, you would get first priority. So, if you were no no child of Operation Peter Pan ever came with their parents, we all came uh, alone. I think there was about um, fifteen or. 16,000 um, children who came between 1961 to 1963.
0: And did you land with family in the United States? Or did I you was... Land as, uh, Bill yeah. landed in an orphanage.
4: Well, Bill, I think that I always like to tell Bill that the difference between he and I is my family showed up to the airport to pick me up. His did not. And if you've read his book, he goes into... Uh, great emotional detail about how that all happened and transpired. So my, it turned out that my godparents had come to the U.S. six months prior, and so I stayed with them until my parents came in June of 1962.
0: This book is Boxing for Cuba. We actually re-aired a conversation with Bill about his memoir, which you can hear at cprnews.org. Um, Elaine, you've never lived in Cuba, but used to visit relatives a lot. And as we said, your mom was born in Cuba. What are your memories of of the earlier times there? So I used to
5: go to Cuba um, every year to visit my grandparents in the 50s. Uh, My mother grew up in Cuba. She left Cuba when she was about 16 to come to the United States to go to college my memories of visiting Cuba were pretty fabulous memories. Uh, we used to go to the beach that was close by to Havana called Baradero. I think Maria and I both have memories of, of from there. We both have pictures with our parents from there, which is was the most beautiful, pristine beach. Now it's quite built up with lots of different hotels. Um, but my memories are completely beautiful. My grandfather uh, died in Cuba. He's buried in Cuba. And whenever I go back to Havana, I make sure I go to the cemetery and visit my grandfather's grave.
0: It's interesting. You know, Bill mentioned this veil of fear that has existed between the two nations. Is that something that you've perceived, a veil between these two sides of yourself?
5: Well, I I think there's a really big difference between the individual Cuban person And the political environment and the embargo. The embargo has been promoted by a very small minority in the United States. I think there's widespread support right now to end the embargo. Um, When you speak to the Cuban people, and since I speak fluent Spanish, all of us do that are part of this program today, um, every single Cuban wants to lift the embargo. They want to have good relations with the United States. They want to have more American people come there. It's just a wonderful, welcoming place
0: to visit. I'll say that the New York Times conducted a poll on the embargo and finds that most Americans do support ending it. Uh, This was a poll that they conducted with CBS News. 62 percent of Americans said reopening ties would mostly be good for the United States. But the poll found that fewer than half, 40 percent, think it will lead to democracy for (laughs) Cuba. About half said they thought it would not make much of a difference
3: in that particular poll.
0: So, uh, Bill Vidal, go, go ahead. I hear you trying to interject. Oh,
3: if, if, I, if I might add, I mean, we do business with China, who is a totalitarian government, and, and yet they have a free market economy. I mean, I, I don't know from my perspective that making Cuba democratic should be the goal, as much as we should try and see how we can become friends again. The veil that I'm talking about is, and I'm, I think I'm, old, I'm the oldest person here on the panel. Not you know, much. if we recall, the the, the Cuban uh, missile crisis put the world to the brink of war, of nuclear war, more than any other instance in our history. Uh, And so I think that there's that veil of fear of communism, the old uh, domino theory that still linger, you know, that communism was out to overthrow capitalism and so on. I think on the Cuban side, when I visited Cuba in 2001, the embargo has been used as the reason why Uh, Cuba doesn't open itself up, that it must protect itself because it's right next to this, uh, the biggest power in the world who wants to um, run their lives. And so it's been used by the Cuban government to pose fear among the Cubans of the United States wanting to control their lives. And I think that that is the veil of fear that I'm talking about that will be lifted, that at the end of the day, we are people – and that if given the chance, I think President Obama understands that when he – I, I saw in his, uh, in his press conference yesterday with Raul Castro that rather than to react to kind of some incendiary provocations that uh, Castro stated, that he basically said the United States can withstand criticism. What will really make the change is when people uh, interchange with one another. And I just strongly believe that that's the case.
0: I want to say that the the criticism has gone both ways. Uh, Castro said of the U.S., we find it inconceivable that a government does not defend and ensure the right to health care, education, social security, food provision and development. Uh, So there have been volleys in both directions. But, Bill, I want to go back to your childhood just for a bit and and this notion that you were a part of Operation Peter Pan. And you describe that time on the plane being flown away from Cuba without your parents as really the nadir, the lowest point you can remember in your
3: life. Um, it's It still is. Um, you know, I remember sitting on the airplane uh, wishing and praying that God would take me. I didn't want to live through that pain anymore. I have never reached any point like that again ever in my life and hope I never will. Um uh, so it was really the most traumatic experience of my life and still is. Yet at the same time, I think, you know, my dream now is I'm an infrastructure expert. Uh, maybe I'm a legend in my own mind, but maybe some people would see me that way. I would love nothing better than to use what I learned here in the United States to help uh, Cuba rebuild why in the don't, future.
0: Why don't we pick up with that topic after a break, this notion of your roles in Cuba in the future You're listening to Colorado Matters. We are speaking with three Cuban-Americans, two of them Coloradans, one of them a former Coloradan. That's Bill Vidal. He is a former head of the Colorado Department of Transportation. He was deputy mayor of Denver for some time and for a briefer period uh, mayor of Denver. We're also speaking with Maria Garcia Berry, who runs a public affairs firm in Denver, and Elaine Gantz-Berman, who served on the Denver School Board. Back in just a moment with their hopes for the island. This is Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and uh, this is a historic day in global politics, certainly because of the president's visit to Cuba and uh, for darker reasons, the events in Brussels. We are focusing on uh, the former of those two right now with three Cuban-Americans. Uh, joining us uh, right now from Florida is former Denver Mayor and Deputy Mayor Bill Vidal. He also used to lead the Colorado Department of Transportation. We are also joined by Elaine Gantz-Berman, who served both on the Denver School Board and the State Board of Education. Her mother was born in Cuba. And Maria garcia Barry joins us. She runs a public affairs firm in Denver and was born in Cuba. Both Maria and Bill were uh, participants in Operation Peter Pan, which brought them from Cuba to the United States at a very young age, without their parents, mind you. Uh, the families later reunited. I want to talk about your roles on the island going forward. So, Bill Vidal, with your transportation background, you said you'd like to lend your infrastructure expertise to the island. What um, what are the needs there in terms of transportation?
3: Well you would uh, you know just from when I've been there, even just paving roads would be um, uh, a major priority. I can tell you since I've also have expertise in public works and I've done buildings I mean a lot of those buildings are just crumbling, and so I think on both those ends they need help but there's a lot of traffic systems that hopefully as uh, if they can begin to increase automobile traffic and as tourists uh, fill the area, especially American tourists uh, fill the area, I think traffic and public transportation will need to be improved there as well. And
0: we heard from uh, Congressman Perlmutter just earlier in the conversation about the state uh, in particular of buildings. Um, you know, it seems to me that there might be a risk uh, in this opening of relations of um, of it sounding like, oh, the U.S. knows best and so let's help poor Cuba. Is this a two-way street in this regard, Bill Vidal?
3: I, I, I think so. You know, But just like you do with a, a normal relationship with a normal person, you both have strengths and weaknesses. So hopefully what we can do is learn from them as well, that we go there as friends with open arms, with respect for one another, knowing that we both have something to offer one another. So, so yes, I think there's a danger of that, Ryan, what, what you said, of us appearing uppity, I guess. Okay. But we shouldn't. We shouldn't. We should be open to the fact that they've learned a thing or two about health care, about education. Uh, you know, I, I think some uh, there's a lot of conservation issues that Cubans have had to deal with just for not having things that we could also learn. I also sensed when I was there that there was a strong sense of community that we could emulate as well, where people look out for each other and help each other out. So I think that there are many, many things we could both learn from one another. Maria, you have several projects in mind. One
0: involving connections between Colorado groups and Cuba. Tell us about your plans. You've already mentioned entrepreneurialism.
4: Well, I, there, you know, there's a lot of interest in Colorado that I think um, both Cuba and uh, and Colorado could benefit from. I think my uh, line has always been, I think, because some of us didn't grow up in the 305, which is the area code for Miami. Instead, we grew up in the 303. (laughs) I think we have a very different view uh, at times of how to deal with Cuba. I think Cuba, uh, I agree with Bill, there's some um, research that they've done in different uh, parts of medicine that I think we could really, I think Elaine can address that. She and her husband uh, have been down there on medical missions. And I think, well, Unfortunately, the Cuban healthcare system, by and large, is in shambles to some extent. There are some parts of it that have done some very interesting research that I think we could learn and, and benefit from. You know, I think my hope for the country is, and what I see my role being. Both with part of the groups that I'm involved with, uh, et cetera, is to this is not going to happen overnight. One of the my biggest fear in all of this is Cuba's now cool and hip and hot, and then in 18 months from now, as Americans start going down there, and nothing dramatically changes in terms of accommodations or infrastructure or whatever, people will say, "Oh yeah, been there, done that. Take it off the bucket list. I've moved on." It's going to take a long time to rebuild Cuba, and I think some of us who still have relatives there who still have friends there, who have families there, need to be there to support them because this is not an easy road. This is going to be a hard, hard road.
0: Let's take it to the very personal, Maria. So you have family there. I do. What do the changes that uh, we are seeing mean for the relationship with your family? How close you feel to them?
4: I I think it will allow us um, a little more um, ability to dialogue without what I call the proverbial... Uh, baggage that exists that my parents made decisions for a reason to leave primarily because of me, and they, in their view turned their back we turned our back on the family in in Cuba so I think that's those are very personal feelings it 's very emotional when we go back there. There are relatives that I met for the first time when I went back in two thousand and three and then in two thousand and nine um, it 's always very very um uh, I think emotionally exhausting to some extent so i 'm hoping that if we can then enter into uh, serious communication like normal people would have like you would call up your aunt I mean prior to this you know getting something to Cuba or calling someone in Cuba or communicating somebody with Cuba was always a trial and tribulation. you never knew it was going to happen right away or whether it could happen in um, in three months etc so I think that that kind of ability to have a more normal, familiar relationship, is going to be very, very critical.
0: It's so interesting that you say the family that moved to the United States in some regards turned their backs on the family left in Cuba. Was that self-preservation?
4: Um, my parents made a decision when they were 32 and 35, I'm their only child, that they felt that they originally supported Castro, then they got disenchanted, then decided to leave the country. They did it for me because they wanted me to live in an open society. I will ever and forever be appreciative of what they did. But I think some of the family that got left behind, okay, that didn't have that opportunity to leave, that somehow couldn't manage for other reasons, they thought the revolution was going to be over overnight and stayed. At times, there have been some deep resentments. I I've tried. My mother is still alive. I've tried to get her to go back. In her view, she has closed those doors. She has closed those windows.
5: She doesn't want to reopen them.
0: Elaine, you've been nodding a lot as maria has been talking to that notion of the of the family relationship.
5: Well, you know, when, when you speak to people um, in Cuba, um, they have quite a strong resentment for the people that left and have built this wonderful new life and are very successful and have a lot of material goods. And there's a resentment and a fear that those people are going to want to come back, the Cubans that left, and are going to want to buy up Cuba and take advantage of the new open doors while the people that have stayed in Cuba have lived through extreme poverty, extreme malnutrition. Um, So, yeah, there is a pretty strong resentment for a lot of the Cubans that left.
0: Let's talk about your work there. You went to Cuba, I think, as recently as last month, part of a delegation of pediatricians from Children's Hospital, Colorado. Your husband's a pediatrician. Can you shed more light on what the medical relationship might be and what the needs are there or the lessons the Cubans have to teach the world? So in
5: February, we led a delegation of about 30 pediatricians and their spouses, and this was the first ever uh, joint conference between the American Academy of Pediatrics, Children's Hospital, University, and the Cuban Pediatric Society. Uh, We were very conscious when we planned the meeting to make sure that when the American doctors spoke, that the Cuban doctors got equal time. So we were literally sharing because there was a lot to be shared on both sides.
0: Give us an example of something that was shared.
5: Well, for example, in Cuba, uh, they do an extraordinary job on preventative care for kids. All the kids get immunized. They get preventative care uh, every month for the first year of life. When a woman is pregnant and she's diagnosed as a with a high risk pregnancy, the woman gets put in a maternity home close to her house and will stay there for the duration of her pregnancy. A maternity a, home. A maternity home. They're very small. They're very. Uh, they're they're cozy, and the family can go visit them. But because of that, they're monitored, and that's why when they do give birth, the babies tend to be healthy, and there's a low, lower infant mortality rate. They have a lower infant mortality rate than the United States of America. That's pretty remarkable. They also, um, they train many, many more primary care physicians. And a statistic which I find pretty astounding is that the exportation of docs from Cuba to places in Latin America and Africa is their second largest source of revenue, second to tourism. So the whole medical area is one that we can learn a lot from them, and hopefully we can we can teach them as well.
0: On the other hand, I think preemies don't fare very well in Cuba, uh, premature births.
5: So the way they collect the data in Cuba is they make the determination that a baby that is 24 weeks or younger will not likely survive. So if a baby is born... Um, and they're 24 weeks or less, they do not try to save the life of that baby. Uh,
0: very briefly, we have about a minute, uh, I found it notable that the U.S. Postal Service will have direct mail service to Cuba, uh, perhaps small, perhaps big in your minds, but certainly symbolic. So in a round-robin answer, Bill Vidal, will you be writing a letter to Cuba that will go directly there?
3: Uh, probably not. I, uh, I, m- my family there now is pretty distant, so I don't know who I would write it to. It is meaningful though, because uh, when when uh, the post office was cut off to Cuba, I never heard very much from my parents while I was in an orphanage in Pueblo. Mm. Uh, Maria.
4: Um, yes, even though a lot of my relatives now have email, even though it's a little spotty, but yes, I will be doing
0: them. Right. Just about 5% of Cubans have access to the Internet, we should say. And Elaine?
5: We have not talked about the Internet at all. In my opinion, opening up the Internet will probably have the Bigger largest, um, make the largest difference of anything that we've talked about this morning.
0: Rather than snail mail. Rather uh, than snail mail. It's been nice to speak to the three of you. Thanks so much. So we've been speaking with Maria. Pardon me, Maria Garcia Barry. She runs a public affairs firm in Denver. Bill Vidal was Denver's mayor and former head of Colorado's Department of Transportation, and Elaine Gantz-Berman served on the Denver School Board and the State Board of Education. They are all uh, Cuban Americans, and at cprnews.org there's a photo slideshow of them as children in Cuba and also on their return visits to the island. Coming up, Colorado's been a trailblazer and continues to be when it comes to women serving in elected office. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado led the nation in electing women all the way back in 1894 when three women became state representatives. And the tradition continues. Colorado today has the highest percentage of women serving in its state legislature than any other state. Yet it hasn't elected a woman to be U.S. senator or governor. There is a new film about this. It's called Strong Sisters, Elected Women in Colorado. And Laura Habner of Centennial and former Greenwood Village City Council member Meg Froelich produced the film. Ladies, welcome to the program.
6: Thank you, Ryan. Thank
7: you for having us.
0: So, Laura, you're a former director of uh, the Colorado Legislative Women's Caucus. Uh, It's a bipartisan group made up of the women in the Colorado General Assembly. And part of your work involved writing biographies of female lawmakers throughout the state's history. What about that research was so fascinating that you and Meg thought, gosh, this should be a film?
7: You know, it's interesting enough that Colorado has this amazing history where we were the first state where men voted to give women the right to vote on that issue and that issue alone in 1893. And then one year later, we elected the first three women to serve in any legislative body in the world, actually. That's interesting enough. But when you look at the actual women who have served over time, and I started writing up these little biographies, they have such interesting stories. And I wanted people in Colorado to know some of those stories the way that they know about Molly Brown or Baby Doe Tabor. These are women who were accomplished in and of their own right and made a big difference in our state.
0: Whose story were you most burning to tell?
7: Oh, well, (laughs) there's a story about Agnes Riddle, who served in the 19-teens, who uh, was the only woman serving in the state house when one of the men carried a bill to create a red light district in Colorado. And it would have set a curfew for the women who were in that area that they had to stay in that area overnight. And she stood up and said to the men, I'm fine with that as long as the men who who are there have to stay there all night as well. And which one of you wouldn't have a little problem with that. and it takes, as it, it takes two to tango. Yes. And so the the bill failed. Um, and it was just a wonderful example of how women make a difference. And that story is sort of buried in some suffragette newspapers from the era. Um, and those are the kind of stories I wanted to go looking for.
0: Uh, Meg, Laura alluded to this, but we, we have to talk about women getting the vote before we can talk about women uh, serving in legislative bodies. And Wyoming was the first to give women women the, the right to vote, but that was done by a bill. Colorado did it popularly, right?
6: Right. And that's sort of what we talk about in the film is the perfect set of circumstances that came together to make that happen, um, both from economic factors and social justice factors. And um, a lot of that we discovered sort of in the process. Um, we had sort of gone in with this preconception of Western women as cowgirls and independent, feisty people. But it doesn't, it doesn't apply equally. So that's true in Wyoming and that's true in Utah. But yet they each had their own path towards suffrage. So Wyoming wanted women to have the vote so that they had enough population to qualify as a state.
0: Oh, there were ulterior motives, you're saying?
6: Yes. And Utah has a different story in which it was an effort to stave off the anti-polygamy people. So Colorado's story is interesting and different. And and how, what
0: drove it in Colorado?
6: Well, one of the interesting things that we really began to focus on is the economic downturn in 1893, the silver crisis, and the rise of the populist movement. And the populist party had as part of its platform women's suffrage
0: And that was an appealing message when the economy was in the dumps.
6: Well, the women in Colorado had a long history of social justice and helping folks who were not as well off and forming communities in these mining areas. And so when the economic downturn put all these guys out of work, it was women going out with both blankets and soup. And then a little pamphlet that said, hey, give us the right to vote and uh, you'll see more of this.
0: (laughs) The image of a broom was a strong image in this campaign, wasn't it, Laura?
7: Yes, they they used uh, the broom as a symbol of cleaning up government. And um, we've seen that through history, this idea that women will help to clean up government, that you can trust women more. Um, That's not something that we're saying. That's something that you see in the historical research is that there's this sense that you can trust women what in can government.
0: You, what can you tell us about those first three women who were elected to the state legislature the following year? So women get the vote in 93, and then in 94, they are elected. All three Republican, correct?
7: Right. All three were Republican, which is interesting because the populists um, had a real presence at the same time. In the following election, two years later, um, populists were elected. Um, but the first three were Republican women, two from Arapahoe County, or really Denver at the time, and one from Pueblo. Those three had not been terribly involved in the suffrage movement. Mm. Um, But what was interesting was that the parties at the time figured out – the women in those parties at the time figured out that if they ran women in some districts, eventually a woman would get elected if you only nominated women from your party. And so that's what happened in these cases.
6: Uh,
0: I understand that women made changes to the Capitol – Physically, as well as leaving their footprint legislatively. Uh, there wasn't a ladies' restroom in the house. They had to go across the rotunda to get to a bathroom. Um, here is former state representative Wilma Webb. She's talking about how Ari Taylor, the first African-American woman to serve in the state legislature, changed this.
7: And they would miss votes. And so one day, uh, Ari, and this was before my time, but she tracked and counted every step that she had to make. And because of her, uh, women could just have something very close to them and still be able to, to manage to get their votes
4: recorded.
0: Meg, the film highlights another example of how female lawmakers worked to make the Capitol accommodating for men and women, and that has to do with language, in particular pronouns. Tell me about that.
6: Well, that was a funny um, story that Dorothy Rupert told um, about wanting to change the language to be gender neutral. And this was just perceived as absolutely revolutionary, and hugely costly, which she found to be absurd. But you know, Pat Schroeder also experienced a lot of, um, there's a sort of a theme of bathrooms in the film. And in women's experience, I, I imagine across boardrooms and corporate life, um, she uh, had had didn't have access to the men's cloakroom at, at the Capitol, which was a place of power, where powerful meetings took place.
0: Let me say Pat Schroeder uh, elected to Congress from Colorado, the first woman to be elected from Colorado to Congress. Well, why don't we pick up this discussion actually with more of her story? We'll take just a quick break and return to our discussion about this new documentary, Strong Sisters, Elected Women in Colorado. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We're discussing how female politicians first broke through in Colorado back in 1894. Today, the state has the highest percentage in the nation of women serving in its state legislature. A new documentary called Strong Sisters, Elected Women in Colorado, shares the stories of some of these women. And we're joined by filmmakers Laura Hepner and Meg Froelich. Uh, back to... Uh, Pat Schroeder, so the first woman elected to Congress from Colorado, she talks about getting on the Armed Services Committee as its first female member. The chairman tried to keep her out of the committee but was overruled. And in your film, Schroeder describes how the chairman reacted when she showed up for the first committee meeting with Ron Dellums of Oakland, California. He was the first African American on that committee. And he just blew up and he said, okay. He,
5: the one piece of power I still have is determining how many chairs there are at the, at the dais, and you two are only worth half of our regular members, so you two get one
7: chair. And we decided we're going in with great dignity. We're gonna sit down, and we'll just share the chair. Now, Barney Frank used to always introduce me, saying that was the only half-assed thing I did.
0: The only half-assed thing she did. And she referenced their former Massachusetts congressman, Barney Frank, who, by the way, came out of the closet while he was in office. And so while sexism was something that these women often faced, it it occurs to me that they had male champions along the way as well. Did that part of the story come out, Laura?
7: Definitely. Uh, Dottie Wom says in the film, uh, she has to point out that I think it was uh, Senate President Strickland had all women as heads of committees when he was there at one point, which was um, significant. I think that was in the 1980s or 90s. There, there have been men who have been allies, who have uh, worked with, collaborated with women on various issues over time.
0: As we said, Colorado is number one in the nation for female representation in the state legislature. It's about 42 percent. Did you get some sense of why that is,
6: Well, we really feel it builds on the tradition that we've established. So we, because we've had more women, we have more women. The other thing is that we have such a large representation in our suburban corridor, and I think both parties have discovered that women do well in suburbia. So if you want to win that election, it's often a winning strategy to put forward a woman candidate.
0: You say both parties. And, you know, we said before the break that the first three women elected to the state legislature were Republicans and GOP women were very successful for a long time. But in the film, you say that that has been on the decline. What is going on, Laura?
7: Well, we heard a lot of stories from Republican women about what has happened over the past 20, 30 years. Um, And we've seen a real shift from the numbers being heavily Republican women um, in both the House and the Senate, more so the House, um, uh, to being heavily Democratic women lately. Um, And that's part of the reason we wanted to tell this story is um, nowadays I think uh, younger generations might think that women in office equates to Democratic women in office. And that was not true um, uh, until about 1990s. why is that Well, the film talks about that. Uh, the Republican women who we interviewed talk about uh, a, a very hard right uh, Christian conservative influence in Colorado politics um, at the state house and Senate level that sort of drove them out during primaries, um, and that these women were primaried um, by a, a more right-wing element, I guess th- they would say.
0: And w- w- how does that connect to them being women, in other words?
7: Uh, well, uh, what what they say is that they were more moderate on issues. So they are Republicans, but they might be moderate, more moderate on an issue like uh, reproductive rights or gay rights, um, as we've seen in the last few years, and um, that some elements of the Republican Party aren't happy with that. And so they would run a candidate against them in a primary.
0: This is what Republican women told you in in the making of this film. You know, we mentioned that there hasn't been a female U.S. senator from Colorado, a female governor, a female mayor of Denver. Um, I guess, first of all, how often do women run for those posts? That's the first question to ask. And then I suppose the second question is, why then aren't they elected?
6: Well, we've had women run for these offices and we tried to interview as many of them as we could. Almost to a person, I would say that um, they ran into problems with raising money and often it was a male opponent who was better funded that was able to knock them out uh, or sometimes talk them out of running. So we have a lot of instances of that and that's about access to power and the institutional barriers that still remain at that higher level.
7: The other thing that we heard um along the way is uh, women who told us that they waited until their children were in high school or out of high school before running for office and so if you have a group of people who wait for fifteen twenty years before they even begin a political career, even begin to run for lower level offices, they're just not going to have as much time to access Congress or the Senate or the governorship um, and so We think that is shifting, and we talk about that in the film, that more women with younger children are willing to run for office and find a way to make that work. Uh, But that's one of the things we heard. The other thing that we heard is uh, in terms of going to Washington, D.C., there were some women who said – I moved to Colorado. Live in Colorado. Why would I want to uh, go all the way to Washington D.C. Now that would apply to men, to men as, as well. well, right? Exactly. Um, and I, but I can definitely relate to that. Um, and uh, I thought that was an interesting thing to hear that we did not expect.
0: Do you think that we'll see a uh, a female gubernatorial candidate and perhaps governor soon? I mean, there's there's talk of the former Colorado State Treasurer, potential candidate Carrie Kennedy.
6: Oh, we absolutely feel so. And so do the women in the film. It's coming. It's coming.
0: Very briefly, Meg, you're actually running for Colorado State House as a Democrat. Uh, But you took this film on much sooner than uh, you thought you'd get involved in political office in just the last 10 or so seconds. Was this related? In other words, as you dug into the history, did you become motivated to
6: run? Well, we certainly hope that people watching the film are motivated to to run, and we certainly feel that women across the political spectrum made a difference, and i 've long wanted to make that difference and so I, I would say it lit a fire under me
0: <laughs> yeah. well, it 's been nice to speak with both of you. thanks so much so that 's Meg Frolick and Laura Hepner. They produced the film Strong Sisters: Elected Women in Colorado. You can see the film at Colorado State University on March 30th and at Denver's Central Library May 1st. That's a special screening for the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame. I'm Brian Warner, CPR News.